From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. A century-old power plant here stops burning coal this week. Neighbors are thrilled, but workers are wistful. Do you think you'll cry? (laughs) Um, I already have. So the last coal train, very emotional. Same thing, when we probably are done with coal this week, I will probably be emotional. Meanwhile, climate activists say they've won the battle, but not the war. We're still a petrostate, and we are looking towards the future. And we would like to see not only coal gone, but eventually all fossil fuels and natural gas included out of the picture. Later, he left his mark on Southern Colorado through Tejano music. Young artists just starting in the industry, my dad helped them grow, and a lot of people look up to him for that. Hi, this is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV, and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in. Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org. On the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again. From Colorado Springs, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters on the road again from CPR News and KRCC. Looming large on the skyline in the springs are smokestacks. They've been here for almost a century, and they belong to a coal-fired power plant called Martin Drake, which is actually owned by the city. Colorado Springs Utilities serves nearly 240,000 homes and businesses, and later this week, these smokestacks will stop coughing up coal. The plant is going all natural gas. And even that is temporary as renewables hit prime time. More on that in a bit. First, I want you to meet someone whose livelihood is intertwined with this plant. She is the embodiment of the energy transition that must happen if the very worst of climate change is to be avoided. My name is Summer Meese and I manage the Martin Drake power plant. Normally, Summer, there would be a a hill of coal, but there's not. There is not. There is now a small mound. A small mound, the last remnants of coal that Martin Drake will burn. And how do you feel about that? Uh, It's very mixed emotions. It's bittersweet. Um, I've been in the coal-fired power plant industry for 18 years. So to see something like this is very odd for those of us who've grown up in this world. Uh, We also understand that new technology has to make its way in for new generation. And I think at the power plant in general, all the employees are at the point where we're ready to move on and and rip that Band-Aid off and move on to the next phase. And the next phase is natural gas. And then after that, renewables and the demolition of this plant. Yes. Yeah. So again, very bittersweet, kind of emotional. We've been attributing it to like a death in the family. (laughs) Um, Because again, many of us have worked in this industry for... 10, 15, some employees, 30-year employees. What is this truck that's passing us? It's spraying water over the coal. So per our Title V emissions permit to operate this plant, we have dust emission regulations. So they will go around and water the roads, the coal pile, et cetera, to make sure that the dust stays down when the wind uh, is blowing. So that's part of our environmental air permit mitigation. That is like a coal Zamboni, <laughs> is what that's yes, like. Okay. Yes. 
I think it's interesting you say you have mixed feelings about this. I'm not in the coal industry. I'm not in the power industry. I am someone who covers climate change a lot. And I look at this and I think, good riddance. This is what's warming global temperatures. This is what's polluting nearby neighborhoods. Hasta la vista. How does that make you feel to hear something like that? Uh, again, it goes back to bittersweet. Um, we understand the technology piece, but I would say, I don't know that we pollute neighborhoods. We have fantastic emission controls on these plants. Now, again, coal is dirty. I get it. Natural gas is cleaner. Renewables is even better. But we do everything we can to be good stewards. The technology to have cleaner air. I mean, you don't see anything coming out of the stacks from dust. Um, but I don't know that we've got this brown cloud over the community like you would see in other countries. I have been to China. We look great compared different, to China. <laughs> different story. Do you worry about climate change, Summer Mies? Um, I do because I know that it's real. I don't know, again, goes back to those mixed emotions of seeing that we need to move forward with the technology in the world we live in. Um, I think there are other things that also contribute to that that we need to work on, you know, all the cars on the interstate. There's a lot of contributing factors. I don't know that this power plant is the one and only, but again, I get the big picture and understand the need for change and move forward with technology from a hundred-year-old coal-fired power plant to something state-of-the-art. I have to tell you, I was so excited to meet you because the climate change conversation can be so politically charged. It can be ugly. It can feel apocalyptic sometimes. And there's so much conversation about the energy transition and who that affects. And you represent so much of this transition because your job will continue managing natural gas and renewables mm -hmm. for the city of Colorado Springs, correct? Correct. Definitely a future here with what we still have going on with these natural gas generators or temporary natural gas generators that will burn natural gas or dual fuel if needed in the winter. They will also burn diesel. Again, still not 100% emissions free, but it is a step in the right direction. So I feel like we will still have what we need in our portfolio to provide for our customers. Are you getting retrained in some ways? I'm not trainable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you telling me you're an old dog not picking I, up new tricks? I, I don't I buy it. I am being retrained. Really right now the focus is on my staff from the maintenance to the operations staff to make sure they understand the new technology. I'm picking up bits and pieces as fast as I can. Yeah. Um, and I will, I will learn it as we go. I am also learning more about renewables. I've you know, got a couple of hydro facilities in my purview. So learning more about hydro, also have taken on helping manage purchase power agreements for solar and wind. So I'm learning more about solar and wind. So I am slowly getting there, but it's a lot all at once. We will get there. Do you think you'll cry? <laughs> um, I already have. You already have. So the last coal train, very emotional. Same thing when we probably are done with coal this week, I will probably be emotional. Um, it's hard not to be, right? I, it's been my life for 18 years. I helped build a coal-fired power plant 10 years ago and start up a brand new coal-fired power plant. Was that Comanche? In Comanche down, 3. Down in Pueblo. Yes. So to build one, start one up, and now shut one down, it's kind of this weird evolution that I never thought I'd see in my career. Um, so yeah, it is a little bit emotional, and I think it, it's really also feeling for all the employees that are seeing their lives change. We're standing outside the plant. It's hot as blazes. And my understanding is that the coal pile was reduced even faster because people are turning on their air conditioning units. 
Yes, so this week in particular, we were not expected to be in the 90 degree weather. Uh, this is not typical for August. I mean, warm weather, but not this. So we'll be running at higher loads all week, which then 24 to 36 hours from when this is all pushed into the plant, we will be officially done burning coal in the plant. And we'll make that transition to natural gas probably the end of this week. You live in Colorado Springs? I do. I have a question for you okay. about this property. Eventually, after this natural gas transition, this publicly owned land will be kind of up, up for grabs. What do you want to see here? For me, I'd want a brewery in the old site. But again, I love like old structures and I'm a big geek when it comes to industrial look. A brewery, a shopping center, apartments. But that's just me. Thank you so much for being with us, Summer. <laughs> Thank I'm you. really grateful to meet you. You too. Thank you. Summer Meese manages the Martin Drake Power Plant smack dab in the center of Colorado Springs. It will burn coal for the last time this week. But it's not the end of fossil fuels for this municipal utility. It's not even the end of coal here. We're going to put this conversion into context now in terms of public health, climate, electricity bills, and reliability. As CEO of Colorado Springs Utilities for the last nearly three years, Aram Benjamin has overseen the decommissioning of Martin Drake's coal power generation. He's an engineer who came from the country's largest municipal utility, Los Angeles. Hi, Aram. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for your time. Electrical engineer Jim Riggins is a home energy rater and consultant. He chairs the Southeastern Colorado Renewable Energy Society and has consulted with Colorado Springs Utilities on the economics of ditching coal. Jim lives in Monuments in a net-zero passive solar home he designed. Hello, Jim. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. Nice to meet you. And Amy Gray is a climate finance strategist at Stand.Earth. She's also a leader at 350 Colorado Springs. That's a reference to an upper limit of atmospheric CO2. Gray won a local Climate Warrior Award last year for her campaign to wean El Paso County off of coal. Hello, Amy. Hello. Aram, first off, what forces drove Colorado Springs to convert this coal plant to natural gas. Help us understand that. So there were many factors, Ryan. Emissions was one, but uh, more economics and also the need for generating fast-acting units that could come online and offline very quickly to balance the load that we're looking for when we have solar and wind and distributed generation integrated in our systems. Ah, okay. So a few things there to unpack. One is, you said cost which actually I'm going to have Jim Riggins reflect on in, in a bit. You also said emissions, uh, kind of code for climate change and carbon. And, and then you talked about fast acting. Is coal not fast acting? Coal units are typically designed for steady, you know, 365 days a year, steady load. They take a long time for them to be fired up and brought up to the uh, maximum capacity. And they like being held to a certain megawatts that we would generate and then hold steady, which we call it a base load generation. It's not nimble, huh? It's not nimble at, at no. all. And they're not designed to be able to be ramped up and ramped down, which is opposite of what the units that we're installing right now have the capability of getting up very quickly and being turned off very quickly. And you need that because as you rely more on solar and wind, you need just a more flexible system. 
Yes. Ram, Drake already runs partly on natural gas, and this conversion brings in more. Uh, But even with those additional generators, Martin Drake won't produce as much power as it did burning coal. You will be relying on renewables, and there's another coal plant in the system as well, correct? Yes. We have Nixon Power Plant, which currently runs on coal. Okay. And will it be doing more as a result of the closing of Martin Drake? No, it will generate. It's a 200 megawatt generation that we have. It will be basically running, maybe uh, moving forward, it will be less than what it has done before because we will have more resources online. Okay. Well, that's important to know. Yeah. Amy Gray, I mentioned that you were named a warrior. Does seeing Drake go from coal to natural gas somehow mean you've won a war or just one battle? For us, it's we've won the battle, um, not the war, because we're trading coal for natural gas, um, which in the state of Colorado, you know, that fracked gas causes a lot of pollution where it's extracted at the source in the communities that are around the wells where it's extracted. So we're still a petro state and we are looking towards the future. And we would like to see not only coal gone, but eventually we would like to see um, all fossil fuels and natural gas included out out of the picture. But I think the important thing to remember here is that there was no new fossil fuel infrastructure built when Drake is decommissioned. Like they're bringing in the generators, it's in the same area, so we're not building anything new. You know, and I'm excited to see what Colorado Springs Utilities does in the future to bring more renewables online and all of the new innovations that will help us get to 100% renewable energy in the future. Yeah, because Martin Drake, even as a natural gas plant, is not going to be around for very long. It could close, uh, I think, by the latest, December of 2022. So your eyes are on what comes after that, what might happen to that Nixon coal-fired plant. Remarkable, Amy, to hear you, an environmental activist, complimenting the CEO of a utility, not something that happens every day on the radio. But, you know, I I do want to talk about Martin Drake's relationship impact on the immediate neighborhood. I mean, I remember living next to a power plant in college and we would have ash on our cars as a result of what was burned there. Can you reflect on what Martin Drake has meant not just globally, climactically, but hyper-locally in that neighborhood in the Springs? Absolutely. The Mill Street neighborhood is what we call our frontline community here in Colorado Springs. Um, And that's the neighborhood adjacent to the Drake coal plant. And that coal plant has been there for as long as people can remember. And that neighborhood has been dealing with the repercussions for all the time they've lived there. And, you know, we spent a lot of time consulting with our frontline community and listening so that they could convey just how it felt to live next to a coal plant. And it's not just, you know, that immediate neighborhood either. It's a five mile radius around Martin Drake is directly affected by the pollution that a coal plant causes. And that's how, asthma. Yeah, how so? Yeah, asthma. Okay, go asthma, ahead. Asthma, heart disease, all sorts of things. Like breathing in those particulates, they're called fine particulates and they get into your lungs and birth defects in kids, the water gets poisoned directly around a coal plant. And as you know, Fountain Creek is right next to it. The soil, everything needs remediated around a coal plant because all of those things that come out of the emissions, you know, the nitrous oxide, 
it, it gets into the soil, it gets into the water, it gets into our lungs. But the biggest complaint, honestly, that we heard from the Mill Street neighborhood, from those folks who live directly next to Martin Drake, they're used to the coal ash on their cars, they're used to it on their houses. But what really interrupted their quality of life was the train whistle. And the sound of the trains like constantly in and out and in and out. But you're talking about the coal trains. Yeah, the coal trains. That's what really did it for them. Imagine you're asleep in your bed and a coal train comes barreling through your neighborhood at two o'clock in the morning and the conductor pulls the whistle. That's a downtown area. So they have to alert folks that the train's coming through. And so that's what interrupts their quality of life most often is to be quite honest, it's the coal trains. And so what we want to see too going forward as Drake is decommissioned and as the land is remediated and used for something else, uh, there's developers chomping at the bit, I'm sure, to get their hands on that land. (laughs) But we don't want to see the Mill Street neighborhood gentrified either. We want to see a very thoughtful conversation with that frontline community to make sure that that history and, and that legacy of that neighborhood is preserved and not just, you know, run over with a bulldozer because developers want the land once Drake is gone. So we just want to urge our city council and, you know, our our city leaders to really take into account that frontline community and to do some deep consultation with them. Jim Riggins, you consulted with Aram Benjamin and the utilities uh, over some of the economics of this decision. Can you explain what has happened to the cost of coal and how that led to coal-fired power plants like this one being converted. Uh, because as as virtuous as it might sound for climate change, this is also a financial decision. Let me answer that in two parts, because there's two types of economics that uh, go into power generation. One are the indirect costs. Uh, some people will call them societal costs. Those really haven't changed over the decades. That is the indirect cost from the mining, washing, moving, burning of coal, and the disposal of uh, coal residue. That entire process, called the life cycle costs of coal, have a very significant impact on health, environment, and climate. There was a detailed study, 2011, by Harvard Medical School that showed that the most likely actual cost of burning coal was about 176 cents per kilowatt hour, which, by the way, is much more than the 10 to 11 cents that people pay retail. Hmm. But but let me just stop you there because you're so right to in a way you've subtly corrected me, um, which is that I talked about economics and environment almost as if they were separate. What you're saying, of course, is that they're inextricably linked. Yes. So the problem in trying to initiate change from that is, is that those costs do not show up on your utility bill. And until Aram came into Colorado Springs Utilities, the utilities and the utilities board did not want to discuss these externalities, these societal costs of burning coal. But the other interesting thing happened, which did more significantly turn the tide, is that the actual economics, which shows up on your rates and on your bill, turned a corner about 10 years ago to where it became cheaper to build out new wind with battery storage, new solar, than it was to simply operate an existing coal-fired power plant, and by a significant margin. Um, mm. I, I think one of the turning points in terms of knowledge gained was a 2018 all-source solicitation by Excel Power Colorado, 
where new wind generation plus battery storage cost half as much as just operating all but two of their coal-fired generators. And that's why you saw Excel Power accelerate the decommissioning of coal and greatly accelerate the build-out of wind and solar and battery storage. I wonder if it's also just getting more expensive to mine for coal? It is. Um, There's a magic depth of about 400 feet below the surface of the earth where as you start to extract coal below that level, the processes become enormously more expensive. So Mm. the the coal fields that are used at uh, Ray Nixon and Martin Drake are in Wyoming, where the coal seams are at a slant. They go deeper into the earth over a given distance. So the shallow coal has mostly been mined out. And these large coal fields now are getting to deeper and deeper levels, which becomes more expensive. And at the same time, the cost of solar and wind has dropped. uh, Well, let's see, solar has dropped about 89% in 10 years. Wind has dropped about 70. And there's an expectation of another 66% drop between now and 2030. And so when you hear the argument that renewables are somehow not competitive, that that really is not the case anymore, Jim. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. But you have to temper this. And Aram, as a, a CEO of a utility, has to temper this with reliability. So it's not just the cost, but you have to keep the lights on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there is going to be a bridge between where we are today and going to something close to 100% renewable. And that requirement for the bridge is because wind and solar just do not operate on a continuous basis to operate a baseload plant. But of course, unlike Texas, though, uh, we are connected to a larger grid. And so you could move power from one place where the sun is shining and the wind is blowing to another, right? And that absolutely helps. But that doesn't give you 100% reliability of baseload. And storage systems right now, the technology just isn't there yet, but we're getting there. Our conversation about coal yielding to natural gas, yielding to renewables, continues in the next half hour. And later in the show, a solution to the housing crunch in Cripple Creek. We'll also remember a popular Tejano DJ in Pueblo, who succumbed to COVID-19. From Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters on the road again. In my slivers of free time, I've eaten some great meals here. I had John Bing, a kind of Chinese crepe at Lucky Dumpling, and a scotch egg at a speakeasy called Shame and Regret that's off an alleyway downtown here. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with KRCC and CPR News. Standing tall and broad-shouldered, Pikes Peak is Colorado's best-known mountain. The Ute called it Sun Mountain, and oral history says their ancestors walked the summit a long time ago. These days, people get to the top of Pikes Peak by foot, by car, by train. A wagon and a mule took Catherine Lee Bates up the mountain in 1893. Inspired by its purple majesty, she wrote the poem that became America the Beautiful. The founder of the Beautyrest Mattress Company thought there should be a more comfortable way to reach the summit. He financed the first cog railway. 
But one person who never got to the summit? Lieutenant Zebulon Pike. In 1806, mired in deep snow, his expedition abandoned their attempt to climb the mountain that today bears his name. As Pike later wrote, no human being could have ascended to its pinnacle. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. We're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This week and next, we're on the road again after all the pandemic isolation. We're masking up and often meeting outdoors. And today, we're in Colorado Springs, just in time for a milestone. The Martin Drake Power Plant downtown is about to stop burning coal. It'll be natural gas from here on out. And by December of next year, the plant will be gone entirely as renewables step up. The final part of my conversation now with El Paso County climate activist Amy Gray, energy consultant Jim Riggins, and CEO of Colorado Springs Utilities, Aram Benjamin. I asked Aram about reliability. If someone's on a ventilator in Colorado Springs, will the power stay on? When we were doing the planning up front, we said reliability is not open for negotiations. So when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing, everybody can flip the switch on and they will get electricity generated and delivered to them. How we do that is the transition that we're talking about. So when you have a, a 180 megawatts generation at Drake, that capacity factor, which is what we measure on how often those units are on, the more we add renewables, the more we add capacity to store, the less of those generators are needed, except for the days where we don't have those resources. Just like we do now, we put on coal, gas, renewables, batteries. We actually want to have more reliability because of the microgrids and everything else that we're putting in. Microgrids, meaning that homes, businesses themselves can generate enough power for their own energy use, but perhaps for others. I do want to ask about jobs. You know, we started this program with Summer Meese at Martin Drake, whose life is no doubt going to change as Drake goes from coal to natural gas and perhaps out of existence entirely. Talk to me not just about this immediate conversion, but the long-term horizon. What does this mean for people's employment, uh, specifically with Colorado Springs Utility? I suppose you can't speak necessarily to the Wyoming coal miner, Aram. The core of our transition plan were the people and the employees of this utility. So anything we did was based on their retraining and their positioning. Having four utility services is something that other utilities envy because we have water, wastewater, the gas side of our utility. We have many, many support functions. So what we call integrated human resource plan was basically designed for everybody that has been you know, basically dedicating their life to this uh, power plant, 90 people that we had, highly trained, highly motivated skill set that they've had. We've planned all along to have a transition plan. So whether you're an instrument and technician that's working on a coal plant, for you to transition to a water treatment plant was something that we wanted to do. And those skills are transferable. So let me let me just be clear. No one is losing their job because of this. Do I have that right? Not a single person is losing their job. They're changing the jobs that they would do in the future, but none of them have been asked to leave. Amy, I know you've answered this question a million times, uh, but one of the huge arguments when you talk about the transition away from fossil fuels is 
lives and livelihoods connected to it. Now, that's everyone from owners of mineral rights to miners to truckers to train operators to the people at the plants. Reflect on that for me as part of this discussion in the Pikes Peak region. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask to respond to this <laughs> either way, uh, because <laughs> I did. I, you know, I, I think that was such an important question to ask Aram and something that we thought about at the very beginning of this campaign. But I, I think there's that political rhetoric that, you know, oh, these crazy tree hugging hippies, they just want everybody out of a job. And that absolutely is not the case. Like one of our core fundamental pillars of organizing um, at 350 Colorado Springs is just transition. And that means making sure that people aren't out of a job and that they are able to provide for their families. And we wouldn't go ahead with a campaign unless that was a core pillar of our organizing. That's not to say that everybody is guaranteed a job right. in the new economy. Like that That's a little right. rosy. That is a little rosy. And th- those are some nice rose-colored glasses. Uh, <laughs> but we know it's like rotary telephones to cell phones. It's horses to cars. You know, society is going to evolve. We are going to come up with new, better ways of doing everything. And when we find that we have to rapidly transition from fossil fuels to renewables, I mean, the latest IPCC report Mm. Um, It was heartbreaking to know that the U.S. um, and the world is still burning fossil fuels at an exponential rate. But people are going to transition. Society is going to transition. That's right. It doesn't mean that there's absolutely a job for everyone on the planet, but there will be that transition period. And it might be a little tough. And, you know, those coal mines are probably not going to be operating much longer. But again, like society naturally ebbs and flows in our industry. And so we just have to remember that these folks are our friends and our neighbors and to, you know, help transition folks into what a new green economy looks like. There will be those opportunities for those folks, millions and millions of jobs in green energy, to be honest. Could could I just uh, reemphasize, it's important to keep this argument uh, balanced. Jobs in renewable energy and energy efficiency is one of the fastest growing sectors in the U.S. and in Colorado, those sectors employ thousands of people. So while you have jobs uh, going down in the fossil fuel industries, you have a rapid increase in job creation in renewable energy and energy efficiency. And I think it's also critical and great that the state of Colorado has set up an office of just transition to help these communities. And they're working hard and spending a lot of money to help these communities get through this transition, which is critical. Aram Benjamin, the Martin Drake power plant is central to Colorado Springs. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat from the Olympic Museum and not hit the coal plant, frankly. Uh, You can't spit from the soccer stadium and not hit the coal plant. What happens to this block once... The plant's gone. I mean, Amy talked about not wanting too much gentrification and, uh, you know, pricing people out of the market. What's your vision for it? So our direction is to make sure that we go through this transition. So we have some milestones that we're going through. We're going to get through the commissioning of the new units, and then we're going to 
focus on the infrastructure that exists there. So the net land that we're looking at, the brownfield, is about 40 acres of open space uh, in that area. It is a publicly owned land. It, uh, the, the citizens of the city own that land, which is the gateway for the city. We want to keep the conversations going with the public to make sure that that is used for public benefit You know, as we move forward, whether it's going to be parks or open spaces or any other vision of what that gateway looks like. It's conversations are going to get more and more intense in what we use it, but definitely that open space there is going to be dedicated for public benefit and public use. Jim, Amy, Aram, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Good, good Thank talk. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, good Ryan. Good you, Amy. Aram Benjamin is CEO of Colorado Springs Utilities. Jim Riggins of Monument chairs the Southeastern Colorado Renewable Energy Society. And Amy Gray is a climate finance strategist at Stand.Earth. One more bit of context to throw in. We talked about the Drake plant and the source of its coal in Wyoming. But of course, energy is a global market. So it's possible that coal is eventually burned abroad. The U.S. is now a net exporter of coal as other countries build new plants. Well, in the mountains west of here, schools in Cripple Creek and Victor are changing how they teach, emphasizing technical education and career readiness. A $1.4 million state grant will help. KRCC's Abigail Beckman has the story. So um, these are all the materials. Standing outside on a concrete basketball court near the Cripple Creek Junior Senior High School, Miriam Mondragon points to stacks of steel pillars and siding. And uh, it was nice because um, a local excavator, he um, gave us a great deal on getting it transported. Mondragon is the superintendent of the Cripple Creek Victor School District. And then the city of Cripple Creek, their public works department, they volunteered labor and heavy equipment use to get everything moved and placed. The materials she's pointing out, once they're assembled, will soon be the site of a 9,000-square-foot construction trades shop. There, high school students will earn certifications in things like electrical, masonry, and plumbing, and on-the-job training as they complete a manufactured home. The district has about 350 students in kindergarten through 12th grade, with a four-year graduation rate of just under 85 percent. That's higher than the state average, but Mondragon says the real issue is finding work after graduation since only a handful of students go on to four-year colleges. You know, I mean, it's great learning about ancient civilizations, but that doesn't really serve them when they walk out of these doors. And, she says, many kids in the district work at the casinos that line historic downtown Cripple Creek, where they hire as young as 15. And they have jobs because they have to help their families pay bills and put food on the table. But it was also that our students were really disengaged in their education. I don't feel like they saw a lot of value in what they were learning when they were here. So the district decided to switch things up and make the high school experience more relevant to life after graduation. Mondragon says they wrote up a proposal, and a few weeks later, the state announced grants funded by the CARES Act. 
known as RISE grants. The acronym stands for Response, Innovation, and Student Equity. The total award breaks down to about $4,000 per student. And I was just so overwhelmed with the fact that they believed in this district that much to give us that amount of money. I mean, it was close to what some universities were awarded. Mondragon hopes the trades shop will be finished by the spring semester. Bids on the project will be accepted through the beginning of September. They have all the pieces. They just need someone to put them together. And once a contractor is selected, the plan is for a Pueblo-based company called IndieDwell to step in. General Manager Ron Francis says they'll supply the district with the building materials to complete a home that, after it's done, will be sold into the community. Part of our mission is to get involved in the communities, particularly, you know, for education and raising the level of opportunities for those students that aren't necessarily going to go to four-year college. Francis says the value of the materials would be between thirty dollars to $40,000. And since Cripple Creek lacks affordable housing, the project will work to house someone in need. Superintendent Miriam Mondragon says these opportunities could change a lot of things for the kids here. Kids like Ketcher Blevins, a junior at Cripple Creek Victor. Well, first it will be helping others with the houses that are supposed to be made if everything goes to plan and it builds a career for people that are passionate about it. In addition to the construction project, students will have the option to enroll in a culinary arts and hospitality program, as well as fire science and EMT training, all funded by the same grant. That's what Blevins plans to do. Um, I want to be an EMT and go to college, then be an FBI agent. And while his plans are clearly laid out, The district is also offering a more general option for students who need a bit more exploration in hopes that they can start a career with a livable wage right out of school. And that's what our kids needed. They needed hope. Mondragon says the ultimate goal is to have every student participate in one of the programs once available. I'm Abigail Beckman, KRCC News. And Abigail is with us now. It's nice to see you, Abigail. Nice to see you too, Ryan. You know, that story really resonated for me because my high school had a closed-circuit television station. And so I could practice broadcast journalism and have this marketable skill. How pressing is the need for a job readiness program like this? In talking with the superintendent, it's it's very pressing. So in the story I mentioned that very few students go on to four-year colleges, you heard Miriam Mondragon talk about how the students were disengaged. But on top of that, the district has a high percentage of kids living in poverty or struggling with homelessness. So really anything that they can do to boost their opportunities out of those situations is going to be helpful. Mm. And the fact that they received such a huge amount of money means they can start to have that impact rather quickly. And there's such a ripple effect because, as you reported, this touches employment, affordable housing, and even a sense of community. That's absolutely right. This this isn't a program that will help one student who may or may not stay in the town once he or she has technical training. This is a program that will help families, businesses, and Teller County as a whole. And as I was driving up to Cripple Creek to do the interviews for this story last week, I saw a sign that said the town of Divide was looking for more volunteer firefighters. So that fits perfectly with the school's fire science program. Those kids can start as volunteers and the fire department hires from that pool. Another thing is the expansion of Bronco Billy's Casino up in Cripple Creek. Kids who get these certifications from the construction program could potentially put those skills to work right in downtown Cripple Creek 
developing an industry that the town already relies on. And keeping people local if they want to stay. Do you have a sense of what other school programs in Southern Colorado are using CARES Act money? There were a lot of really neat things that uh, these RISE grants went to as far as schools and universities in Southern Colorado. The purpose of the grants is to improve student learning and close equity gaps for the most part. Adams State University is going to use $2.5 million to create a program that will include all 14 school districts in the San Luis Valley as well as the Boys and Girls Club, and that will help students enter the workforce and help the region grow economically. Colorado Mountain College has campuses in Salida and Leadville, among others. They will use funds to increase enrollment opportunities for high school students and local institutions of higher education in rural communities, and they were given nearly $3 million. And this one is really cool. Pueblo Community College got $2 million to help low-income folks living in rural areas have access to distance learning. The school plans to lead a group of several Hispanic-serving institutions where they will share the courses that they develop and train instructors in online teaching practices. Fascinating. And you mentioned the San Luis Valley. My colleague Avery Lill will be there next week as Colorado Matters is on the road again. Nice to catch up with you, Abigail, here in Colorado Springs. Thanks for having me, Ryan. KRCC's Abigail Beckman. And we'll be right back to remember a stalwart on the Southern Colorado music scene. This is CPR News. After a year out of the classroom, schools and students are adjusting to a new semester with new realities. Younger kids can't get the COVID-19 vaccine. Some schools are making masks compulsory, but others are fighting that. Masks greatly reduce the ability to transmit body language and expressions. And for some children, masks mean not knowing the mood of the people they're interacting with or the intent or tone of a conversation. I'm education reporter Jenny Brendine. Follow my reports on CPR News and at CPR.org. He was a champion of Tejano music in Southern Colorado. Hola, les saluda Luis Ibarra y los invito a que escuchen a mi amigo Eddie G. De lunes a viernes de 6 a 10 de la mañana. Catch the Tejano fever. La fiebre 94.7. Tejano, loud and proud. But Luis Ibarra was about much more than radio and music. A father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and Vietnam veteran who adored his community. Ibarra died in January from complications due to COVID-19 after 42 days in the hospital. Family gathered just this month on his birthday to remember him. He's loved the music industry his whole life, pretty much. Um, besides the Army, that's, that was his passion. That is his daughter, Angela Louise. Her middle name honors her dad, who fell in love with Tejano music and courted musicians from beyond Colorado. He used to keep in touch with the artists when we'd go to San Antonio. He would get in touch with a lot of those local artists and ask them if they were interested in coming to Colorado to perform in Colorado because he wanted to bring the music that he loved back here. Everyone knows Selena, and he brought Selena to Colorado for the first time, actually. Pueblo was the first city, and he brought her twice. He brought her once when she was very young, and he brought her again to the state fair here in Pueblo. In the 1960s, Luis Ibarra was stationed at Fort Carson. 
he was full-time Fort Carson, and he did the radio station and music producing on the side. Ibarra worked on the base for decades, painting tanks and other equipment. He spent even longer as a DJ at Spanish-language radio stations in southern Colorado. And he didn't just spin records. He was a mentor to local musicians. I remember bands from Lahana and Rocky Ford and Greeley, Colorado Spring, you know, young artists just just starting in the industry. And my dad helped them grow. And a lot of people look up to him for that. Angela says Tejano music permeated her childhood. Her mom and dad loved to dance. This is how I was brought up. You know, everybody has their own type of genre they listen to and whatnot, especially Mexican music, Spanish music. But I explained that Tejano is my, is our world. It's what we grew up in. You know, when I'm cleaning house, I'll put it on. When my brothers are grilling, they'll put it on. If we have a card night, we put it on. You know, we we listen to all kinds of music, but that especially is our go-to. And it just brings back such good memories of me growing up and watching my parents dance. I mean, anybody you ask will tell you they were the best dancers in Southern Colorado. Gary Hobbs was his all-time favorite. Una rosa, dos, tres rosas, mi amorcito te daré. Una rosa, dos, tres rosas. I always just feared my mom and dad being so old that they wouldn't be able to dance. So that's kind of how I pictured my parents getting old and me losing them was by age. The pandemic derailed that picture. When COVID hit, my mom and dad were super, super cautious. They wouldn't go anywhere. You know, they were the couple that stood home and we'd have to take them dinner or they would come by in the truck with their masks on and we would hand them their food with their gloves on. Um, My dad would not pump gas without gloves on at the gas station. And, you know, just very, very cautious. We didn't see them for a long time. We spent, you know, a couple holidays without them because they didn't want to be exposed to anything. But weeks of pandemic isolation turned into long months. I think my dad had cabin fever because he loved being out. And there was a dance and it was a band that my dad, you know, was helping and mentoring, of course. So he wanted to go and support them. He was always about support. So he talked to all of us and we all decided we were going to go. That's where Angela believes her dad caught COVID-19. She says at first he was fatigued, lost his appetite, had no sense of taste or smell. Then? His oxygen level was at 69%. And I said, Dad, I'm calling the ambulance. You're going to the hospital. And he said, okay. And at that time, he started breathing heavily. He was gasping. And I just look at him and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, we can't even hug him goodbye or, or anything, you know, because he had COVID. So I just talked to him from afar and told him he was going to be okay. I said, you're going to be okay, dad. I said, let them take care of you. You'll be home in no time and you'll be fine. And he just kind of shook his head. Yes. Nodding at me. Luis Ibarra would spend six weeks in the hospital, part of that time on a ventilator. I remember it was January 1st. The doctor called and said he wanted to talk to me and my mom and my brothers in person. So we went to the hospital and we were all standing around my dad. And he said, um, you know, at this point, there's really nothing more we can do for your dad because his kidneys are failing and his body's rejecting the medication that we tried. Angela and her brother both work in the medical field, and they asked the doctors to try dialysis. But it didn't work. And once again, the family gathered. The doctor said, you know, we can we can keep him alive as long as you want to. 
Um, if he does survive, it's going to be, he's never going to be able to walk again. You'll have to brush his teeth for him. You'll have to just care for, he'll, he'll be in the home for the rest of his life. He will never, ever be able to walk or talk again. And at that point, my mom said, no, absolutely not. There's no way my husband would want to live like that. So we made the decision to, to um, end treatment. And um, since all the kids were there, all the grandkids, and as we uh, spent the entire day, you know, saying goodbye to my dad. Angela's mom also got COVID but recovered. Now that vaccines are available, the entire family's gotten them. Angela says it's what her dad would have wanted. And we were so sad that it just happened a little too late for my dad to get it. Painful as her father's decline was, Angela also focuses on the gifts he gave her. My dad just took very special care of me and my mom and my brothers, um, but especially me because I was the only girl and I was the baby of the family. I'm a single mom. I've been a single mom for 11 years, so my dad was always my biggest supporter. He was so funny on the air, too, and that's another reason why people loved him because he was so personable. So he would say, you know, well, it's five o'clock. I got to go. And my wife's calling me. My cell phone's ringing. I got to go home and see what she made for dinner. Oh, yeah, he was he was a jokester. So many people admire my dad for what he did, being their mentor, coaching, bringing Tejano music to Southern Colorado and giving these local bands the opportunity to grow and to be known and heard, you know, and how many lives he actually touched. And it's awesome. Angela Louise Ibarra, helping us remember her father, Luis Ibarra, family man, army veteran, and champion of Tejano music in Southern Colorado. He died earlier this year at age 74. Here again, his favorite song, Tres Rosas, Three Roses by Gary Hobbs. Hi, I'm Judy Aguilar Allen. My family owns El Taco Ray in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and this is Colorado Matters on the Road. The team guiding our journey is Carl Bielek, Allie Budner, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters on the Road Again from CPR News and KRCC. Try.